As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to open up your Bible, the Bible you brought with you, the Bible that's there in the pew, that if you don't have a Bible, is yours to keep as our gift, or on your phone to open up to the Bible app on uh, the YouVersion Bible app. Go under Events, Grace Lutheran, and it'll pop right up. Open up to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. And while you're getting there, again, if I don't want, don't want to assume that you've all, all been with us, so I want to kind of just set the stage. We've been, we're nearly two months into a year-long journey through the Bible by way of the story. And the story, if you're not familiar with it, if again you are here for the first time or haven't been here in a while, this is a condensed, chronological, narrative presentation of Scripture. It doesn't replace the Bible. It's a way, though, for us to enter into the full narrative of the Bible within a year. And so we've been going through that now for about two months, and when we last left the people of God, they were still in the wilderness, on the other side of a lot of wandering. Four decades earlier, just to set the scene for you, four decades earlier, at about the halfway point of their journey, on the verge of entering the promised land of Canaan, the majority of the community, several million people, dug in their heels to not go forward. After a repeated pattern of grumbling against Moses, a continued indulging in a bit of revisionist history, longing for the good old days in Egypt, you know, when they were in slavery. <laughs> After refusing to relent in their rebellion against God, the people actually said out loud at one point, it would be better for us to die here in the desert than to go to the promised land of Canaan. After all that, God finally gives the people what they want. And the people were given 40 years to occupy the wilderness. An entire generation, an entire generation, even in the midst of the Lord's ongoing provision, kept running in circles, continuing to grumble, to rebel, and ultimately die in the desert rather than moving forward. That's where we've been. And as we come to chapter 7 of the story, what is the book of Joshua, it's 40 years later and a new generation has emerged. Moses has died and passed the baton of leadership to Joshua, camped near the bank of the Jordan River. This new breed, those who grew up wandering, moving aimlessly in the desert, are ready to leave their nomadic life behind. They're poised to enter the promised land where their parents and their grandparents would not and could not go. But before they head out, Joshua gathers everyone together, and this is again a large group of people, for one final pep talk. Before we read those words, some of those words from the first chapter of Joshua, to set the stage for our message this morning, I want to help you to understand where we've been and how it leads into where we're going. Last week, and I gave you a quick recap of last week, last week as we looked primarily at the book of Numbers, we engaged the reality of our lives in transition in that awkward space between where we are and where we eventually are going to be. Today, as we move to Joshua, we'll be learning something else. We'll be learning how to face the challenges, the obstacles, the battles the Lord calls us to confront. How to not only get through them, but also how to be victorious in them. And with that, I invite you to read with me along from Joshua chapter one, starting in verse 1. It reads, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God's words to Joshua, which Joshua then shares with the people. What you have on the slide in front of you is just a quick breakdown of how the book of Joshua divides up. The first five chapters are about Joshua leading Israel across the Jordan into Canaan. Chapters 6 through 12 cover the battles with the Canaanites. 13 through 22 is where the battles are over and Joshua divides up the land among the tribes of Israel. And then 23 through 24 are Joshua's final words, just to give you some kind of orientation to this book. Now, before we can glean something from this part of the story, we need to step back for a second. I, I really was hemming and hawing on whether or not to include this, but after conversations I had, just continuing to listen, I really felt like I can't go any further about talking about the book of Joshua unless I engage the elephant in the room. And what I mean by that is Joshua is a hard read for some of us. You know, you would think this week's sermon would be easier because we're not doing numbers in Deuteronomy, we're just doing one book. <laughs> But Joshua's a tough read. It's considered one of the most controversial books of the Bible because if you haven't read it, it has a very violent narrative. Many are disturbed by Joshua's seemingly paradoxical picture of a loving God fighting like a warrior on behalf of one group of people at the expense, the loss of life of another group of people, the Canaanites. Now, I have to address this so that I can actually have you listen to everything else I want to draw out from this because this really is sort of like a, a big obstacle in the way of embracing this book. Because the question that always comes up as people read Joshua is, does the book of Joshua give us the picture of a vengeful God? We're back to that idea, that theme of, is there a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the New? Now, I want to address that question by helping us to understand as we enter into Joshua a little detail that we might have missed about the people of Canaan that's not found here in, the, in Joshua but goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. To help us understand what's about to happen, what's going on here, we actually have to go back to Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord is talking to Abraham. So we're going way, way back. And God in that moment is foretelling to Abraham. He's foretelling what's going to happen. He's foretelling the exodus from Egypt that's going to happen centuries later. And as part of this prophecy in Genesis 15, the Lord also reveals how the Amorites, the major people group in Canaan, are in full-blown rebellion towards God. Full-blown. And 
Things are eventually going to get so bad, the Lord tells Abraham that by the time of the fourth generation of your family, Joshua's line, I am going to deal with them, God says. I am going to deal with their wickedness and remove them from the land. It's important to note something in this conversation in Genesis 15. The Lord doesn't tell Abraham, I'm going to cause this to happen. I'm going to make them wicked. The Lord knows it's going to happen. And that's why he promises the land to Israel. Okay, but isn't God loving and forgiving? I mean, what's so bad if you've read Joshua to bring down the thunder? I mean, I mean it gets pretty intense in terms of what happens in this book. And what you need to understand, what we get in little pictures all the way leading up to Joshua, is how bad things are in Canaan. The thing is, the Canaanites are morally corrupt. Two primary aspects of their life are out of control, that are highlighted leading up to the book of Joshua. Two primary elements of their life are out of control. The first is their sexual immorality. I'm not going to get into detail, but if you want to see a running list of the sexual deviance and abuse in Canaan, go to Leviticus chapter 18. It is a very disturbing read. One is their just wanton sexual immorality, but second, and perhaps even worse, is their ongoing practice of child sacrifice. They're sacrificing their children. It's briefly mentioned also in Leviticus 18, but you get even into more detail explicitly addressing this in Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is the moral corruption. This is the evil that has become full-blown that God talked to Abraham about, and now by the time of Joshua, is just going crazy. People within Canaan are being hurt by this evil and injustice, including the newly arrived Israelites. By the time of Joshua's generation, things have gotten so bad that people beyond the borders of Canaan are liable to be infected and wounded by such evil and injustice. And so with this context, what we see is the Lord isn't so much taking vengeance against the Canaanites as much as the Lord is bringing judgment. The Lord is cleaning house, much like the flood the flood back in Genesis. What happens here in Joshua is God's judgment on evil at a unique moment in history. But unlike the flood, God's judgment is not aimed at the world at large, only a particular nation. It is only against the Canaanites that Israel is told to go to war. With all other nations, and this is worth noting, with all other nations, Israel is explicitly told to pursue peace. You can find that in Deuteronomy 20 if you want. Okay, I've kind of laid this foundation, but I know the question or that many of you may be asking, because I do, is, but, but isn't God still commanding genocide here? If you read through Numbers, it gets heavy. We read things like, you shall utterly destroy them. We see things like, you shall leave no survivors. And this sounds like the total eradication of a people. <laughs> what gives? What gives? And what I think will help is that this is not literal language. This is not literal language that we read in Joshua. This is hyperbole. It's hyperbole. It's exaggerated language that's typical of ancient battle records of the time. And you need to know that when you're reading through it. It's very akin to when we all of a sudden have a contest, uh, some con con contest against someone else, and we say, oh, we wiped the floor with them. We didn't literally wipe the floor with them. We defeated them. So this isn't in language that's meant to be taken literally. It's hyper hyperbole that's very common for ancient 
language for battle records like this. Now, how do I know this? How do I know that we're not supposed to take this language literally? How am I not just maybe telling myself I want something I want to hear? Because there's two things we can point to in the Bible to tell us that this language is not meant to be taken literally. First, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 before, in anticipation of going into the promised land, as Moses tells the people to drive everyone out, but he also says, don't intermarry with them and don't have business with the Canaanites. Huh? What? Destroy everyone, but don't marry or have business with them. How does that make any sense if nobody's around? It's hyperbole. And in the book of Joshua, go, go right into the book of Joshua, despite all the hyperbole, we see, if you read through it, Canaanites who can, that Canaanites can turn to the God of Israel. We witness Canaanites who survive, who continue to exist in the land. We even hear about some specific Canaanites who go from being enemies to allies of Israel, people like Rahab and her family, and groups like the Gibeonites. So again, this shifts our perspective on this book so that we can take it as it is, that we're encountering in Joshua not a vengeful God, but a just God. And that's still intimidating, and it should be. Not a vengeful God, but a just God who is judging and dealing with evil. And in the midst of judging and dealing with evil is offering, as always, a way out for those who turn to him. Again, ask Rahab and her family. Ask the Gibeonites. So, I, I, I kind of needed to kind of lay that out there for you because I think for some of you that would be all you would be thinking about. Maybe some of you that didn't bother you at all. Maybe because you didn't read the book and didn't know what was in there. Now you know. But with all this in mind, what does Joshua offer to us? I think it offers us three, three insights about how we can engage the challenges and the battles before us. Because this is a book all about battle, all about challenge. And there are three insights that I want to point out as we look at this book. And they are, one, Joshua talks to us about how to engage those battles. Two, Joshua talks to us about how to understand our part in the battles we face. And three, Joshua talks to us, teaches us about how to celebrate the victories the Lord gives us. So one more time, Joshua teaches us how to engage the battles God puts before us. Joshua helps us to understand our part in those battles. And third, Joshua reveals to us how to celebrate the victories the Lord gives us. So let's talk about the first one, how to engage the battles before us. As we get into Joshua, he's preparing to lead Israel, and we see him taking right up where Moses left off in the beginning of this book. If you actually pay attention to the first couple of chapters, you see that his actions mirror what Moses did before. It's almost literally a redo, a reset with this next generation. Consider that in the beginning of the book, Joshua basically gives the same speech about obeying the Torah, of following the covenant, of prioritizing the relationship with God that Moses gave. And just like Moses had done back in the day, Joshua once again sends spies into the land to check things out. And when they go with the help of a foreigner, a native to Canaan, a prostitute named Rahab, who I mentioned to you earlier, they're able to catch a glimpse of the size of the resistance they're facing. But this time, things are different. This time, they don't stand still, they go forward. And in the midst of packing up the camp and getting ready to go, God first says it to Joshua, but you'll watch and Joshua will repeat this mantra to get the people geared up for battle. And the mantra is this, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And as part of this rallying cry that Joshua will repeat to the people, he will always give a reason 
for the people to be strong and have courage. And it will be, be strong and courageous because the Lord, your God, will be with you. And this highlights the first lesson for us from Joshua in terms of the battles we face. How do we engage the battles that the Lord puts before us? How do we engage the battles that the Lord puts before us? We engage them by being strong and courageous. And our strength and courage in the battles the Lord calls us to, whatever the opposition, whatever the struggle, the obstacle, that strength and that courage does not come from within ourselves, but from the certainty that the Lord goes before us, that our God is with us and for us. In the opening chapters of Joshua, we witness the Lord backing up this assurance that he is with the people. He gives the people the strength and courage they need to go forward. And there's, there's three things that happen that demonstrate the assurance of this promise of God's presence. First, and the picture highlights this, there's the crossing of the Jordan River into Canaan. If you read this in the book of Joshua, the description of this moment with the Ark of the Covenant going in front of everyone and the waters receding so they can cross over on dry land alludes back to Moses as he led the Israelites across the Red Sea. And once the people get to the other side, once everyone's on the other side, in fact, Joshua explicitly points to what just happened and connects it back to the experience of their ancestors, to Moses, and says, God did this so you will know that he is with you. And then, right after that, as they make camp, per the Lord's instructions, Joshua has the people engage in two other experiences, specific covenant relationship remembrances. What happens is all the males are circumcised. Okay? They've been wandering in the wilderness and they haven't had time for that, so there's just one big grand circumcision party. Whew. Good times, that's right. But in all seriousness, that is the covenant sign of belonging to the people of God. This is a way of saying we're dedicated. And then there's the first celebration of the Passover in the promised land that takes place. All of this before they do a single thing. And again, these covenant practices, these experiences are intentional because they're a tangible means of providing Israel with a renewal of her identity. The point of all this, why does this happen? Why are all the males circumcised? Why do they celebrate the Passover right then and there when they camp on the other side of the Jordan? Because the point of all this is God is saying, now that you're in Canaan, don't go forgetting who you are. Don't go forgetting whose you are. I'm with you. I've got your back. You're not fighting, hear this church, you're not fighting for me. I am fighting for you. The battle belongs to me. God makes that clear to the people. The battle belongs to me. And my friends, we face battles. We face challenges. We face struggles that the Lord puts before us. And just like the Israelites, the Lord wants to give us assurances of the truth that he is present in our lives. That those battles, that those challenges, that those struggles belong to him. And he often does this, as we see here in Joshua, by echoing or pointing back to what he's done before in our lives, how he's carried us in the past. It certainly doesn't uh, compare to what we see here in Joshua, but I wasn't always a pastor. I, I, I had a career outside of the church. And the challenge or the struggle to go from that to not even first being a pastor, but being a church administrator had many, many obstacles in front of it. And one of the biggest ones, by the way, was me. And yet God 
provided. God fought that battle. God carried me from where I was to where I was supposed to be as a church administrator. And if you know my story, and some of you do, within very little time at the church where I was now a church business administrator, all of a sudden God presented another opportunity, which I perceived as a challenge, which I saw lots of obstacles in front of. And it was going from being a church business administrator to being a pastor. And once again, the biggest obstacle was me. But God, just as he had done in the past, in the almost, uh, almost identical way, provided, cleared the way. And this is so important, these touchstone moments that we have. You see this throughout the Bible when things happen where God says, remember this. Because God has a habit of doing it again. Doing it just like he did the last time. And it's that he does this as a way of assuring us when we face the next battle, the next challenge. I'm with you. I'm with you. And even if we, right now, if you think about your own life, you can't come up with one of those touchstone moments. We also, like the Israelites, if you can't, if maybe you haven't reflected on your life to see those moments where God has carried you that you can look back on. What's awesome is just like the Israelites, God has given us beyond things that are personal to us, God has given us as a community, as the body, specific covenant remembrances that we can go back to. For the Israelites, it was circumcision in the Passover, this is how you remember that you're mine. This is how you remember that I am with you and for you. And for us, we have baptism and communion. We have covenant remembrances that we can go back to. We, face, we can face the battles before us with strength and courage because in the waters of baptism, the Lord has laid his claim on us and we embrace that identity as his children through our commitment to Jesus Christ. Through baptism, we can know whatever happens, the Lord is with us. At the table of Holy Communion, which we come back to in this community week after week, Jesus points to the giving of his life on the cross as a cover of forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins, as well as our assurance, not just that we are forgiven, but that he stands for us. He fights for us. He offers his life for ours, giving us the victory over death and therefore entrance into the eternal promised land of life as it should be, as it was meant to be, whole and unbroken, full instead of empty, living together before the face of God. And every time we come to that table, we are reminded, we are given strength and courage in, in the midst of whatever we face because Jesus is declaring that he is for us and with us. That's the first insight from Joshua that how do we engage the battles and struggles before us with strength and courage that comes from knowing the Lord is with us? But and by knowing that the battle belongs to God, it's not our battle, it's God's. And if that's true, if we can be strong and courageous before whatever the Lord calls us to face because the battle belongs to him, then the second question, the second insight is, well, what exactly then is our part in the battle? If the battle belongs to the Lord, what's our part? How do we live out that strength and that courage? And the next part of Joshua, chapter 6 through 12, describing how the people engage the Canaanites, reveals the answer to that question and our second insight. And if you've read this at all, 6 through 12, there are many battles recorded in these chapters, but I think we learn best about our part in the battles the Lord puts before us from the most famous engagement in Joshua. And that would be the battle of Jericho. Jericho. Jericho, Jericho, Joshua and I love Jericho. <laughs> Nobody? Okay, whatever. All right. Man. That was awkward. All right, so. So Jericho. 
Jericho was located about seven miles west of the Jordan. Just to set this up, this, is the, the, this Jericho is the signature battle in Joshua. It's, it's about seven miles west of the Jordan. It's almost directly opposite of where the Israelites had been camping prior to entering Canaan. And this is their first major offensive. If you haven't read this story, notice something. It's their first major offensive, and yet God doesn't tell them. It's their first battle, and yet God doesn't tell them, okay, take your armed forces and place them at strategic positions around this fortified city. If you know this story, that's not what God says at all. No, God says, okay, I want you to follow the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to march around the city for six days while they play music on their trumpets. And on the seventh day, I want you to circle the city seven times while they continue to play. And on your final rotation, I want you to shout your voices to join the chorus of the instruments. That's the battle plan. That's the battle plan. A seven-day worship service. That's what it is. A seven-day worship service. Walking around the city. Picture it. I don't know how you picture it, but you've got to read the text. Walking around the city, giving the glory to God, shouting their praise on the seventh day, the day of rest, by the way. Interesting. And on the seventh day, the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down. They come tumbling down not because of any sword or arrow. They don't come tumbling down because of the brilliance of Joshua or any other warrior. The walls fall because the Lord knocks them down. And what's really interesting, if you go back to the Lord's instructions before all this goes down, for seven days prior, the seven days prior to that moment when the walls come tumbling down, Israel is told to worship as she marches around these walls and she's told to worship as if it's already happened because that is exactly what the Lord tells her. Before they even start their worship service, God tells them, listen to this, see, I have delivered, not I will, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings and fighting men. They worship as if it's already happened because God says it is. And once the walls have fallen, we're told that Israel is told to take the city and to dedicate the spoils of battle. Don't miss this. Take the city and dedicate the spoils of battle, all the silver, all the gold, all the bronze, all the iron to the Lord. This is yet another act of worship. Offering the outcome of what is gained and dedicating it to the Lord rather than taking the credit for themselves. So beloved, what I'm getting at here, the second insight What's our part in the battle? Beloved, our part in the battles we face for the Lord is to worship. Hear me. Our part in the battles we face for the Lord is to worship. And by worship, what I mean, looking at Joshua, this story, by worship, I mean the movement from knowledge about God to trusting the Lord. Worship is about movement. Worship is not about standing still, despite how many of us Lutherans worship. It's not about standing still. Worship is about movement, moving from what God reveals to us, tells us about who he is, who we are, what he's going to do. It's going from hearing that, receiving it, and putting the full weight of our lives behind this revelation, this knowledge. True worship is not just going through the motions, paying lip service to God. True worship is about engaging the battle the challenges before us by looking to the Lord, 
That's all that the Israelites are called to do. Look to the Lord, wait upon the Lord, follow the Lord's lead, and cry out to the Lord. That's the battle for us. Worship. To look to the Lord, to wait upon the Lord, to follow the Lord, and to cry out to him. Before the giants, the walls, the challenges and obstacles before us, we face them. Our part is through our worship of our God. If the battle belongs to the Lord, we don't go charging in by ourselves. We look not to the opposition or the hindrance before us. We look to the Lord. That's where we look to. Not down here, but up there. If the battle belongs to the Lord, it's not about our strategy or strength. It's about his authority and power. We don't run headfirst into the conflict. We wait upon the Lord, his signal to go. If the battle belongs to the Lord, then we are, it's not about us coming up with our own battle plan or countermeasures. We follow the Lord's lead, trusting, despite all other appearances, that the walls will come tumbling down. You know what's interesting? As I briefly shared to you, those, those touchstone moments where God called me to have strength and courage in the midst of the battles or the challenges he put before me, is that every time I actually engaged in our part in the battle worship, Suddenly, I was at peace. Suddenly, I could see what the Lord was doing, not in whole, but in pieces. But when I tried to figure it out myself, when I tried to come up with my own ideas of how to make this work, when I tried to strategize, it was a mess. It was a mess because the battle didn't belong to me. It belonged to the Lord. My response, our response when we engage the battles that the Lord puts before us is to worship, to look to him to look to him, to wait for him, to follow him, and to cry out to him. We engage the battle through our worship of the Lord by our submission and reliance upon God. And when we worship, surprise, surprise, we gain strength and courage. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. When we worship, there comes the strength and the courage. And when we fail to worship, When we fail to look to, when we fail to wait upon the Lord, when we fail to follow and trust God, we always end up on the losing side of the battle. I can testify to that in my own life, but I can also point to it in the book of Joshua. Jericho is the most famous battle, but the battle that comes immediately after it is so important because it bears out the truth of what happens when we fail to do our part, which is worship the Lord. It's the reverse scenario of the battle of Jericho, the battle of Ai, A-I, Against less opposition and fortification than they faced at Jericho, Israel gets beaten badly. And Joshua is stumped, man. Joshua cries out to God. He's stumped. Why did this happen? And the Lord's answer is immediate. He points back to worship. Someone is trying to fight the battle without me. Someone is denying me the glory, the credit I deserve. I am owed. And it it turns out that one guy, Achan, one man, Achan, kept some of what was to be offered to the Lord for himself. Remember all that silver and gold, all that iron? He kept it for himself. And to add insult to injury, Achan hid it. He buried it. He buries the evidence. My friends, when we steal, when we hide, when we lie, we are worshiping ourselves. That's why it's part of God's rules for life. When we steal, when we lie, when we hide, we are worshiping ourselves. Instead of looking to God, what we're doing is we're looking to ourselves, our own desires. Instead of waiting upon the Lord, we're taking matters into our own hands. Instead of following the Lord's agenda, we're setting our own. 
And Achan's betrayal, don't miss this, one man, Achan's betrayal leads to loss for many. And if you know this story, what is needed to set things right? You're not going to be surprised by the answer. What is needed to set things right? Worship. Worship. Confession and repentance. Acts of worship are needed. That's your part. Confess and repent. And the minute that Israel engages back in worship of the Lord, confessing and repenting before God, what happens? The outcome is changed. Worship is the battle. Turning to, relying on, trusting, and obeying the Lord. When we try to fight the battle apart from the Lord, when we deny the Lord what he has owed, our obedience and faithfulness, we will lose badly. So my friends, at this point, with two insights of being strong and courageous, not from within yourself, but from the fact that the Lord is with you, and hearing that your part in the battles that the Lord puts before you, the struggles and the challenges, is to worship, to look to, to wait to follow and to cry out to God, I ask you, is worship a part of your life? Is worship a part of your life or is your life an act of worship before God? There's a difference. Is worship a part of your life, something you do at sun, on Sunday morning or Saturday or in your devotional time, however you break it up, or is your life an act of worship before God? Are we relying on the God who fights for us or are we trying to fight our own battles? Are you trying to fight your own battles? Where's your focus in the midst of the struggle, the challenges that are put before you? Is yours a defensive posture where you protect yourself, where you run away? Or maybe your posture is to impatiently strike first, get them before they get you. What's your posture before the challenges and the struggles that are put before you? Are you like most people? Do you max out the limit of your resources and strength, banging your head against that wall that's before you, and then, only then, in your exhaustion, look to God through worship? My friends, what if we tried it the other way around? What if we, instead of that being our last resort, what if we adopted a posture of prayer? What if we began with an inclination towards the word? What if we started in a place of waiting, relying upon the spirit of God? What if we started with worship? Would it be different? I think it would. Because our victory comes through the worship of our victor. Our victory comes through the worship of our victor. The battle belongs to the Lord. God fights for us, giving us strength and courage before whatever stands against us, against his plans and purposes for us. So worship, looking to, waiting upon, trusting and crying out to him is our part because our Father can take care of, our Father will take care of the rest. There are other battles fought in Joshua, which we will not go into this morning. There are alliances that are made to bring Israel down, but if you read through the book of Joshua, in every single circumstance, despite the best alliances that are put together, in every conflict against Israel, it isn't even close because the Lord delivers his people again and again and again. And eventually we get to the point where enough territory is taken that Joshua begins to divide up the land among the tribes of Israel. And that part of Joshua chapters 13 through 22, nine chapters, is really kind of ponderous. You know, okay, let's get everybody together. This is your parcel of land. This is your parcel of land. It's like reading a map without pictures. But this part of the book is significant too because it gives us the final insight from Joshua. We've talked about um, how do we engage the battles put before us? What's our part in those battles? And then the third insight that comes from this section is how to celebrate our victories in the Lord. You see, what happens here is in the midst of everyone moving into their new digs, 
the, their allotted portion of the land, Joshua stops them and brings the people together and tells them to recognize what just happened. God has fought for you and given you the victory. And Joshua says, this victory is bigger than you realize. For through this battle, God has brought you your inheritance. The land promised long ago. See, what's important is Israel is realizing not just the occupation of the land, but Israel is receiving the fulfillment of the Lord's promise, his covenant made to Abraham. God has delivered on that promise. Joshua tells them, that's what you're celebrating. God has delivered on a promise he made four generations ago. My friends, I don't know about you, but when I face a struggle or a challenge or an obstacle, for me sometimes, when the battle is over, I can get so caught up in what's next that I forget how to properly celebrate the victory. Sometimes we need to recognize the real victory in battle, as Joshua points out here. This is bigger than just this parcel of land that you've now, you now have. This is a bigger victory that God has given you. When it comes to the battles the Lord fights for us, the real victory is often more than the immediate result that's before us. When it comes to the battles the Lord fights for us, the real victory is often the fulfillment of a longer journey, a bigger promise God had made to us. I married, as many of you know, my high school sweetheart. And let me tell you, that was a challenge and a struggle to make that woman say yes. Um, and then once again, it had less to do with her and it had more to do with the obstacle of me. And I could absolutely and did, when she said yes, as anyone, anyone would, was so excited, I was celebrating the victory of that moment. I got a yes, she said yes, she wants to spend her life with me. And within a week of sharing that news with everyone as you do, God reminded me of something. And this is, I, I can't go too much into detail for sake of time. Beth and I met back in eighth grade. And what you need to understand is back in eighth grade was a really difficult time for me. That was, a mo that was the moment when I came to Christ, as we like to say. I grew up in a Christian home, but that's the moment when I gave my life to Christ. And the mess that was my life in eighth grade, in the middle of eighth grade, resolved, re involved me giving my life to Christ and praying a prayer saying, God, just give me a new chance Give me, give me my life, everything that's in front of me I've made a mess of. Give me a new opportunity so that I can grow in knowing who I am in your son Christ, so that I can become the man that I'm supposed to be. I wasn't that articulate in eighth grade, but that's what I was in essence saying. And the first person I met when God moved my family from New York to California was Beth. You understand where I'm going with this? I was celebrating the fact that Beth finally agreed to be my wife, but what I was realizing in that moment was a much larger victory that God had given me, and there's no way I could have known it in eighth grade, but God was giving me my partner, the answer to that prayer, the person, one of the most, the primary person he would work through to reveal his presence, to give me strength and courage in my life. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the immediate results of the victory that we miss the bigger picture of what God is doing in our lives. And Joshua tries to point that out to the, pe to the people. So part of celebrating our victories is seeing the bigger picture of what God is doing. Celebrating the victories the Lord gives us is about first recognizing them. But Joshua goes on to show us that celebrating the victories the Lord gives us is also about remembering them. Intentionally remembering them. Because Joshua goes on after he tells the people, okay, do you understand what just happened here? Joshua goes on to emphasize to the people the importance of remembering the battles they've gone through with the Lord. That represents chapter 12. Chapter 12 is just literally a list of all the battles 
that Israel has been victorious in through Moses and Joshua. And it's in there as a single chapter, not as bragging rights. You know, not pound your chest. It's about remembering how God has fought for you. Remembering that God fights for you. Remember intentionally so that you will know and be reminded of what it took to get here, how much it cost, how long it took, and how God provided every step of the way. My friends, when we celebrate victories, remembering is a healthy practice in a relationship, especially with God, because I don't know about you, but we so easily forget the victories in our relationship with God. I know I'm not alone in getting through a challenge or an obstacle, and a week, sometimes a month later, maybe six months, I'm right on my knees before the Lord saying, hey, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me? Can't you help me out here? Can't you do something? My friends, when's the last time, and we don't do this, we're busy, when's, this is important, when's the last time you reflected, you actually wrote down, and I mean this, wrote down and considered all the times the Lord has come through for you, delivered on his promises for you, brought the victory of healing, reconciliation, redemption, peace, joy, forgiveness, grace, and love into your life. If you actually stopped and just dedicated that time to write that down, would you fill a page? More than a page? Could you just go on and on? Would you all of a sudden find yourself continuing to write? And if you actually took the time to write that down, as Joshua is intentional in saying, hey, stop, we're going to remember this, how would having such a remembrance, something written down like that, that you could point to, that you could pass to your kids that you could come back to in the storm, how would that lead you into worship rather than worry? How would that give you strength and courage in the midst of the next battle, the next challenge, rather than fear? When we truly appreciate the victories the Lord gives us, the fullness of them, when we remember them specifically, we can face the battles that lie ahead for us. And you see, there's one last thing about this, celebrating the victory by recognizing the full battle and remembering it. There's one other, one last piece here. Remembering is also so important so that we don't lose sight of the fact that the battle isn't over. If you read the end of the book of Joshua, it's quite interesting because Joshua tells the people to understand in the midst of celebrating the victory, dividing up the land, Joshua tells the people to understand the battle isn't over just because you're in the land. Joshua says, just because you're in the land, the battle isn't over. Joshua cautions Israel. He, in essence, says, this is your inheritance, and not the land. This is your inheritance. And Joshua says, use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. If you live out of your inheritance, not the land, if you live out of your relationship with God, if you continue to follow him, you will be victorious in the land, and you will be blessed. But then Joshua says, if you squander your inheritance, not the land, if you squander your relationship, if you forsake your relationship with God, if you go your own way, if you are unfaithful and adulterous, you will lose everything. Divine judgment will come. Exile will follow. Joshua, in essence, says to the people, and this also helps us understand what's going on with the Canaanites. Remember what happened to the Canaanites, Joshua says? that can happen to you. Don't be the Canaanites. Be the people of God. The Canaanites, 
squandered the inheritance of their relationship with God and you saw what happened to them. Don't be the Canaanites, be the people of God. And then Joshua has this, again, a lot of people know this line, this great line in the midst of the, sums it up. He basically says, choose this day who you will serve. He says, you gotta choose. Who are you gonna serve? And he goes, for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord, but you gotta choose. And it's great. The people all say, we will serve the Lord. It is awesome. They go, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua ends on a high note, not. We will serve the Lord, the people say. And Joshua goes, no, you won't. What? No, you won't. You are not able to serve the Lord. Israel celebrating victory, and Joshua forecasts defeat. You will not be able to serve the Lord. Remembering the victories are important because the battle is not yet over. You see, Joshua, I think, in this moment understands something the rest of the people do not yet. Joshua realizes that he can only take them so far, victoriously into the promised land of Canaan. He can bring them into the land, right? But he can't take them to their final destination. And what is the final destination? What is the end of the promise that God gives to Abraham. It's not about land, it's about relationship. Joshua can take them into the promised land of Canaan, but Joshua can't take them into their promised relationship with God. Joshua understands, in other words, the difference between the battle and the war. The battle rages on for Israel and for us because the true battle, my friends, is not out there. The true battle is not out there. The true battle is in here. And here, the human heart and mind, the greatest wall that stands in our way is not the wall of a city, it's the barrier of our sin. The ultimate obstacle we face is not the opposition of another person or army, it's the curse of death. Ours is not a battle, as Paul will later write, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that seek to tempt and devour us from within. What Joshua understands in this moment is that another Joshua has to come. And isn't it interesting that the name Jesus is Greek for Joshua? Joshua understands that the battle isn't over because the God who fights for us has to come down. The God who fights for us has to come down in the flesh of Jesus Christ to bring down the walls that divide us from him and from each other. The God who fights for us in Jesus Christ has to come down to kick in the door of death and to make a way beyond its curse. My friends, as you sit here this morning, and I hope that this has stirred in you some of the struggles that are in front of you right now, some of the challenges, some of the battles, some of the obstacles, as we are mindful of our battles, the struggles we encounter in our own lives, we can read Joshua and be assured of something that he could not give the people at that time. We can be assured that our victory will be achieved as we remember how the Lord has delivered us and fulfilled his promises to us in the past. Joshua said it was coming, but we stand on the other side that it has come. We can know that we are victorious by remembering what God has done for us in the past. And if we can't remember anything at all, if there's nothing else we remember, we can look to the cross. Before whatever the Lord calls us to face, we can be strong and courageous. Whatever the opposition, whatever the struggle, the obstacle, we can confront it through worship because even though the battle rages on, the cross reminds us that God has won the war. In Jesus Christ, 
the judgment of the cross was turned upon God's self. And in so doing, the condemning forces of evil in this world were defeated through the greater, unconquerable power of God's love and forgiveness. And my friends, whatever you're facing today, whatever it is, whatever obstacle, whatever challenge, and I make light of none of it, I don't. Whatever it is, hear this. If God in Christ has defeated sin, death, and evil, then the authority and power of God through the Spirit in your life can give you the strength and courage that you need to overcome. If God in Jesus Christ has won the war over sin, death, and evil, then you can be strong and courageous in the face of temptation and not succumb to it. You can be strong and courageous in facing and enduring an unwanted diagnosis. You can be strong and courageous to resist the urge to give up, to give in and quit before a setback in your relationship, in your life. You can be strong and courageous to take that hit. We all take them to take that hit that disappointment or betrayal brings and you can be strong and courageous to get back up from being knocked down you can be strong and courageous as a faithful witness in the face of ridicule, hostility, or scorn. My friends, we all have battles that we're facing. We all have obstacles to overcome. We all have struggles that we're in the midst of. But the battle belongs to the Lord. What we have to do is look to him, follow him, wait upon him, hold fast to the promise of victory that we can celebrate even as we battle, that we can celebrate even as we suffer, that we can celebrate even as we mourn because the victory is already won through Jesus Christ. The victory of life eternal, the victory that promises to one day make all things new. Beloved, we shall overcome because we worship the God who fights for us. Amen.